Uh, if you got your Bibles or your tablets or whatever you're using on this particular day, open them up to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. We're going to start reading at verse 1. We've got them on the screens there for you too, just in case you showed up and didn't have anything to read off of. We're going to pick up this next little segment, The Life of Elijah. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain to the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, if you guys remember what's happened, Israel is in the middle of one of the darkest periods of time it has ever seen. This evil is rampant in the nation of Israel. And this king named Ahab, the Bible says, is the most evil out of the previous 19 kings to have ruled over Israel. Ahab is a bad dude. Okay? And so Israel is in this season of time where there's just false gods and idol worship everywhere. There's human sacrifices going on. Temple prostitutes are doing their thing in the temple. You know, it's just a really dark time spiritually for Israel. God sends this guy named Elijah to put an end to all of it, and he pronounces a drought over the land of Israel, which pretty much means financial death and devastation to the country because Israel was agriculturally driven, so no rain, no dew means ain't nothing growing. If nothing's growing, then ain't nothing getting sold. And if nothing's getting sold, then there's no money in the bank. So he's letting Israel know you guys are headed to a hard time because God's had enough. So God sends him to this widow and provides. You remember last week, he provided through the lack because the Lord is the Lord of our lack. Amen? Amen? All right, so he provided there. And so we pick up here where Elijah's still hanging out with this widow waiting. Because a lot of times God will use that ugly word when he talks to us. He'll tell us to wait. So Elijah's been sitting there waiting for three years, a little over three years. And then God speaks and says, hey, now's the time. Go present yourself to Ahab the king. But the landscape of Israel has changed dramatically since Elijah showed up out of nowhere and pronounced this, this plague, this famine, this drought. It's changed dramatically, okay? He's become the most wanted person in the nation, okay? Because everybody's blaming him for what happened. He is literally like a prophet outlaw. So Ahab has sent out squads and teams of people to look all over the countryside for Elijah. Ahab has sent out notice to all the neighboring kingdoms, and he said, look, I'm looking for this joker. If you see him, let me know. Search your kingdoms and let me know because if he's hiding in your country and you don't let me know he's there, then there's going to be trouble between me and you. So there's tremendous pressure everywhere to find this guy, Elijah, that God's had hidden waiting for three years. Jezebel, whew, golly, man, just saying the name Jezebel makes me shiver up my spine as a man. Can you imagine being married to this woman? Oh, my gosh. She, but I guess in a way you kind of attract who you are, though. So if Ahab was the most evil king in over 200 years to rule over Israel, then he's going to attract the demon queen herself, Jezebel, I suppose, because you ultimately are going to attract who you are. So Jezebel has given this order in, in an outlash to kill all the prophets in Israel. So she's just systematically ordering their deaths and taking them out. And it's gotten so bad that the prophets 
are now hiding in caves. And this guy named Obadiah is bringing them food and water to keep them hidden and keep them supplied so that Jezebel can't find them and kill them. Okay? It is not a good time to be a prophet in Israel. And God speaks to Elijah and he says, hey, Mr. Outlaw, I want you to go to the sheriff and turn yourself in. Is basically what he said. This guy's looking for you. He's trying to kill you. We all know that. But you go and you present yourself to the king. How many of you know for Elijah to obey that takes a whole lot of trust? Man, sometimes God will ask you to do things that at least on paper would scare you to death. And it just takes incredible trust to step out and do what he's calling you to do. For Elijah to do this means that he put his life on the line. Which isn't out of character for Elijah though. So this, I I love this though, because he's literally an outlaw showing up to have this showdown with this king. And so he shows up in 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 16. We're just going to jump through this chapter, so keep up with me if you can. Uh, So so Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and he told him that Elijah was there. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I love this because Elijah sends Obadiah to go tell Ahab where he is, and then Elijah waits for the king to show up. That's bold. I know you're the king, but I ain't taking another step. You can bring your bad self here and present yourself to me, and then I'll let you know what's going on. So Ahab shows up, and when he looks at Elijah, he says, Hey, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Troubler. Now, that word troubler, if you're looking at different interpretations of the word, it can also mean snake. It could also mean viper. So literally, like this is almost like an Old West kind of showdown where you've got this outlaw coming into town and Ahab looks at him and he calls him, you low down yellow bellied snake. It's pretty much what he's calling him here. You got this playing out. And uh, <laughs> you troubler of Israel. But it's interesting to me though that Ahab is blaming Elijah for what happened in Israel. It's not Elijah's fault. It's Ahab's fault. It's Israel's fault. You know, like have you ever been around somebody that's always deflecting accountability and it's always somebody else's fault and it's never their mess, nothing ever is their mess, and, and they got fired because the boss had something against them, you know, but the previous 18 bosses had something against them too. Like nothing is ever their fault. I had this guy that uh, worked with me one time. Yeah, I used to do painting and like contract work in houses. And, and so I was working on this house and uh, this, this guy was working with me and he didn't know much about what we were doing. So I was kind of showing him the ropes one day as we were prepping the house and getting ready to, to do all the paint in the house. And so I was showing him how to put down plastic on the floor to cover up the floor and to protect it so that when we came in with a sprayer to paint the ceilings, you wouldn't get paint all over the floor because the realtor wanted to keep the flooring that was in this house. So I'm showing this guy how you lay down the plastic and how you run the tape on the baseboard. Look, it's incredibly important how you run tape on baseboard. I know y'all didn't show up to learn that this morning, but it's important. Because if you put it too high, then when you walk in the room, you step on it, it tears the plastic or the tape pulls off real easy, you know. And if you don't get a continuous band of tape around the baseboard, then eventually it's going to pull off the wall and expose the paint. And even though you spray stuff and it's protected, when you come back through to roll the walls, you're still going to get paint because the plastic pulls back and 
There, there you go. So now you know how to put down plastic just about. So I was showing this guy how to do it, showing him how to tape everything, go around the doors, and said, I'm going to do one room with you. Then I'm going to do, I'm going to watch you do half a room. And then I got to go because I had to get back to do something at the church. But I said, all right, we'll show you how to do this. And I want you to do the floors in these rooms. And when you're done, you go home. So I walked with him in this first room, showed him how to plastic lay it down and tape everything. And it looked perfect. We went to the next room and I said, okay, now you show me what I just showed you. You do it. And so he got down and he did everything, got about halfway through the room and it looked perfect. And I said, okay, you got it. No problem. I'm going to hit the road. Got in the car and left. I came back the next day to inspect the work because it was spray day. Okay. And I walked in and I couldn't believe what I saw. Like it was perfect up to the point where I walked out of the room and got in the car and left. Then there started to be gaps in the tape. And like corners of the plastic were just flapped over. And flooring was exposed. And there were, it was like he on purpose did the exact opposite of what I told him to do. And I went into the next room. Same thing. A little bit of tape here. A little bit of tape there. So I said, hey. Called him in the room. And I said, hey. Um, what's going on with this? He said, this room looks great, but this room right here doesn't look. He says, I don't know. Well, you mean you don't know? You're the one that did it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but see how the tape's spaced out and nothing's like it's supposed Yeah, yeah, I see that. Okay, what happened here? I got no idea. How do you, okay. So I showed you how to do it. Yeah, but what I'm seeing is not how I showed you to do it. Right, Okay. You were the only one here when you were here, right? Yeah. What am I missing? What am I missing in this, you know? He goes, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Just, all I can figure is after I left, somebody came in and messed it up. Wait a minute. <laughs> you're t I'm asking you how this ended up like this, and your, your, your answer to me is somebody they had nothing better to do, broke into this house to our job site, came down to these rooms where you were taping, saw the right way a room should have been done, didn't mess with that room, but came in and sabotaged all the other rooms from the point that I left you to do it alone, and they got their kicks and jollies out of ripping tape up and just messing up the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that's all I can figure, man. Somebody else said, are you kidding me? Like, totally dodging accountability to the side. There is no other way this could have played out. You didn't do what I showed you to do, the way I showed you to do it. Man, I don't know. Somebody, somebody said, okay, fine. You're fired. Go home. So he left. But the dude would not own up. And then he didn't go. He, I can't believe it. I can't believe you're firing me. This isn't my fault. This isn't my fault. I didn't do this. I'm thinking... I can almost guarantee, I bet my pinky toe that there's not a person on this planet that would come in here and just sabotage all that stuff. You know, it, obviously lying, obviously dodging accountability, and just nothing is their fault. Hey, I got news for you this morning. When it comes to life and it comes to the principles of the kingdom of God, if you don't own it, nothing's going to change. So until you own it, you can't change it. 
Until you own it, you can't change it. Until you look at what's going on around you, say, you know what? This really isn't anybody else's fault. This is my responsibility. I made the choices. I made the decisions. It can't be, listen to me, guys. It can't be everybody else's fault. It can't be every, if you've gone from one job to the next, to the next, to the next, and it's always somebody else's fault. You know the law of Bob? The law of Bob, I break this out from time to time. The law of Bob states that when Bob has a problem with everybody else, Bob is the problem. Bob is the problem. You've got to own it. You have to own the repercussions of the decisions that you make. You have to maybe, maybe you didn't get fired from the job because the boss hates you. Maybe your coworkers don't want to hang out with you. Maybe it's not because you're an, an odd black, kind of black sheep. Maybe, maybe it's that you show up late all the time. Maybe it's that you take six bathroom breaks during the day. Maybe it's that you don't finish the work that you're supposed to and everybody else is having to pick up the slack that you're leaving on the job. Maybe the problem isn't everybody else. Sometimes the problem might be us. But if we don't own it, we can't change it. If we don't own it, we can't change it. And blaming others doesn't erase the consequences of your actions. Okay? You just deceive yourself into thinking you're a victim. Have you seen somebody that just has a victim mentality all the time? This is what Ahab is doing. He's trying to deflect the responsibility onto Elijah, and Elijah isn't having any of this at all. And so he... He looks back at Ahab in 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 18. He says, I haven't made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. Just boom, you've, you've abandoned the Lord's commands. You followed the bells. Now get all the people together in Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Elijah just puts it right back on him and says, listen, I haven't done this. This is because of your choices and your decisions and your reaping the harvest. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Can I just tell you, that's got to be one big honking table. That's a big table, man. That is a lot of pork chops and mashed potatoes. That's a lot of mouths to feed. And Elijah says, Bring, get them all. Get them all. Tell them to pack up the pork chops, pack up the mashed potatoes, get the salad, throw it up in a bag, and you guys get together and meet me on Mount Carmel because we're going to have a discussion. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Could have heard a pin drop in that moment. Elijah got them all around him and he said, listen, if God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But don't waver between these two anymore. Because in that time, listen, that, that it was, it was a, a polytheist society at this time. Like they were just temples for idol worship and worship of different gods everywhere. So what the people of Israel were doing was this. It wasn't like they were all 
packing up in the temple of Baal and just worshiping Baal. But they were worshiping Baal. And then they were packing in to the temple of Asherah. And they were worshiping Asherah and going through all the rituals there. And then they were going over into the temple of the Lord. And they were worshiping God. They were, they were worshiping all of them at the same time. Jumping from one to the other. That word waver right there doesn't mean like you're unsteady and you're blowing one way or the other. It's literally meaning like you keep jumping back from one to the other. From one to the other. And Elijah said, look, enough of this junk. Choose one and stick with it. Don't waver any longer. You know, if you really wanted to draw a parallel, what was happening in Israel then looks a whole lot like what happens in a lot of churches in America today. Where when we're in church, we're worshiping God, we're on fire for God, and then we jump back over at work and we do something different. We're a different person. We're all about the money. We're all about the grind. We put on a different persona, and who we were in church doesn't translate over. And when we go out with our friends, we become somebody else. We become a chameleon and kind of blend in. We waver from one place to another. And I believe that God is still saying today what Elijah was saying back then. Don't waver between the two. Choose this day who you will serve. Jesus said I would that you would either be hot or cold at least be one or the other but don't do this lukewarm stuff man because it makes me sick is what he was saying choose to be one or the other and I want to encourage you today not to take the bite of cultural pressure and buy into that man stay away from that fruit and be who God called you to be be who God called you to be don't waver don't waver. Listen, God hasn't called us to be affected by culture. God's called us to affect culture, not to be seduced by it. He's called us to affect culture, not to be seduced by it. No wavering back and forth. No wavering back and forth. So Elijah jumps up in the beginning and he tells Ahab to own it. And then he's looking at the people of Israel, and he says, listen, guys, you've got to stop wavering. You've got to stop wavering between the world and serving the God who created you. And in 1 Kings 18, 27, we're about neck deep in this showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah says, let's do this. Let's have a competition. You guys get a bull, I'll get a bull. That sounds like it could be a country song right there. You get a bull and I'll get a bull, baby. You know, but so he, you got that one for free. Um, so they get the bull. Elijah gets the bull. They set up the sacrifice. And he says, here's what we're going to do. The God that answers with fire. And just about everybody that's been in church or went to Sunday school knows how this story goes. Okay? He says, the God that answers with fire is the one true God. Okay, and the prophets of Baal are thinking, oh, we got this, man, because Baal was the god of the sun, amongst other things, but he was the god of sun and fire. Surely the god of the sun and fire could drop a big fireball and burn up the offering. So they go nuts, and they start to scream and holler and, and worship Baal because Elijah said, you guys go first, and I'll kick back over here and watch, you, watch the little show you put on, and then when you're done, I'll do what I came to do. So they're screaming and shouting, and I, this makes me love Elijah. This makes him one of my most favorite people in the entire Bible because of what he does next. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He starts talking smack. 
Elijah starts being a punk. Yeah. Shout louder. Make more noise, he said. Surely he's a God. He's just making fun of them, you know, getting them all riled up. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Now, probably a lot of you know what the translation for this is right here. Just in case you don't know what Elijah's really saying here is uh, not that he's deep in thought, but that maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's busy right now. Maybe, you're, maybe your God is, is busy dropping a deuce and he can't answer you this morning. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's wrapped up with that deep in thought, searching Facebook, reading a magazine, whatever they do, you know. Like, he's just having fun. Now, that's exactly, that's exactly what he's saying here. It's hilarious. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and you guys need to, to wake the guy up. He says, so they started shouting louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. And when we substitute our idol for God's presence, it always ends in self-destruction. Every time. Anything we put in place in our heart and in our priorities where God is supposed to be is always going to bring destruction into our lives. Every time, whether it looks like a person, whether it looks like a job, whether it looks like a savings account, listen to me, parents, even if it looks like a child, because that child that you love so much can become just as much an idol as anything else in life, okay? Um, husband, wives, anything that comes before, listen now, that place that God is supposed to have in your life opens up the door for destruction time and time again and the enemy's real good he's real good at sneaking these things in to the places of our heart he's really good at finding the cracked doors and wheeling his way in anything anything that does not lead us closer to the Lord can be used as a tool by the enemy to take us away from the Lord. You hearing me? That's why we got to be careful what we entertain ourselves with, who we hang out with, what we allow to influence our lives. It's a deadly game that the enemy likes to play. The end result is always his agenda to steal, to kill, and to destroy every time. How many relationships have you chased that were outside the will of God that ended up in you being destroyed emotionally? How many times did a job take priority over somebody's life and they chased that job to try to get promotion after promotion after promotion while their family fell apart and their ministry fell apart and their relationship with God fell apart? Anything that takes the place that God is supposed to have in our lives will always end in destruction. So when you substitute an idol for God's presence, it never works out good. And this is what was happening here. Elijah says, look, you guys have had enough time doing this. Now it's my time to pray to my God. And Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. In 1 Kings 18.30, they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down.
He said, you've got to own where you are. Don't waver between two anymore. Realize that the stuff that you're chasing is going to destroy you if it takes the place that God's supposed to have in your life. And he calls them together. After all the shouting and after all the show, and he begins to repair the altar of the Lord. And he says, look, guys, let me show you. Let me show you how all this started in the first place. It's because you allowed your altar to become damaged. You allowed the distractions and the culture and the pressure and the idols one piece at a time to destroy the altar of the Lord that he has set before you. And he began to repair it one stone at a time. The Bible says that he took 12 stones, one each representing each tribe of Israel, set them up to repair and restore the altar. An altar for the people of Israel at that time would have meant something. Like when we say altar today, most of the time our translation is this front area up here at the church because you're always hearing guys like me or teachers or preachers saying, come up to the altar so that we can pray for you. Come up to the altar because this is the place of action spiritually, symbolically, you know, come to the altar. But for the people of Israel, an altar would have had multiple meanings would have symbolized a lot more than we realize today. An altar would have been a memorial for the people of Israel. An altar would have been a place for them to come to to remember the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God and, the, and how God had, had, had blessed them in times of plenty and how he had walked with them through the storms of life. An altar would have served as a place of remembrance the things of God. Now sometimes when we forget how good God's been in our lives, it's easy to lose our way in a storm. The other thing an altar would have done, it would have been a place for repentance. Because they would have come to this altar, they would have repented of their sins, they would have offered up their sacrifice so that the blood of that sacrifice would have covered the sin that they committed. It would have been a place of consecration. It would have been a place of commitment. So they could receive forgiveness for what they had done, enter into the, 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 that covering, and then reconsecrate and commit themselves to the work of the Lord and what he had called them to do. And the altar would have been a place of worship all at the same time. And Elijah's saying to them, guys, come here. Come here. You're where you're at now because you've forgotten about the goodness of the Lord. One piece at a time he began to repair this altar. You guys are where you're at now because you've forgotten what you've been forgiven of. You're where you're at now because you've forgotten that God still can forgive the sin that's in your life right now. You're where you're at now because you've stopped consecrating yourself to the Lord and you've gotten distracted by this, that, or the other. Remember this place that was a place of commitment? Remember this place that was a place of consecration? The calling of God on your life where you weren't so distracted by those other things, but you were focused on what God was doing in your life and what he had called you to do for his kingdom.
Remember what it was like when you worshiped God. Because it's in the presence of God that we're transformed and healed and restored. And and he's saying, just remember all of these things. He's bringing them back to the altar. And then he tips his hand in 1 Kings 18, 37. And he lets us know what this is all about. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that. You are turning their hearts back again. See, if you're not careful, you read this account of Elijah, at least what we covered in these first two chapters, and you think that this is about God sending his judgment on Israel to pound them into the ground because of what they've done. That this is about God pronouncing the drought through Elijah. This is about God calling out Ahab. This is about God pointing out their sin and how they don't have it all together. This is about God doing all these just pouring this judgment out on them. And in one, in one way, it is true, but the motive of it all is so that he could turn the heart of Israel back to him again. And I preach this message kind of in a jigsaw fashion today because it's what the Lord laid on my heart. And I want to put all the pieces in place this morning for you. Because the Lord is saying to some of us in this room today that you need to stop making excuses and you need to own it. You need to own the condition of your life. You need to own the decisions that you've made. You need to own where you are right now and take responsibility. It's time to stop wavering between the culture of today and the God that you serve. It's time to stop wavering between compromise and flirting with sin and messing with sin and then coming back into church week after week and expecting God to to forgive you. And he will forgive you, but that's a cycle you don't want to be in because sooner or later, you're going to lose that game. He's telling you today that all the stuff that you're chasing, at the end of the day, If it takes the place that God is supposed to have in your life, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. And he says, it's time for you to hit pause on life and look at the altar of your heart and see what's missing. See what the enemy has taken. See what life has taken. See how it's been broken over time and destroyed. And it's time to let God restore that thing so that he can turn your heart completely back to him. Not 80%, not 90%, but 100% back to him. See, we think in terms in church world, like we, we, we sweep a lot of stuff under the chairs and we sweep a lot of stuff into the closets and we think that man you know what if I'm living my life cranked up maybe 80% for God and I'm just just a little 20% that's still that's still falling short of who God has called you to be and in church we get so excited and shout for the prayer line I mean, I'm telling you, I felt a strong presence of God in the place this morning during worship, and I still feel His presence right now. We get excited 
about the fire of God falling. You know, the fire of God falling. We want to see the fire of God falling. Elijah got all the people together so that they could see the fire of God fall and consume the offering so that God could show himself to be God. And we want to see the big and we want to see the exciting. And when Pastor Josh gets up and he says, we're going to see 2,000 people saved through this church over the next five years. We're going to see 1,000 people baptized through this church over the next five years. We get excited and we clap because we love to see the fire fall. But God's not about that because God's fire doesn't fall until our altar is restored. God's more concerned about the shape of our altar than he is about dropping his fire. All of that served as a tool to turn their hearts back to the Lord. I got a question for you this morning. How does that altar in your heart look today? How does it look today? Heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. Sometimes the passing of time can dwindle away at the fire and passion that we have in our hearts for God. And if, if you let enough hurt happen to us, that altar gets destroyed a little bit more. If you, if you let enough disappointment in life happen, and we don't know how to go to the Lord to have that fixed in our heart, it destroys that altar just a little bit more. And people betray us and walk out on us, that destroys that altar just a little bit more. And before long, that fire and that passion that used to burn for the Lord, that, that excitement that used to make us want to serve in the kingdom of God, you let leadership disappoint and hurt you enough and it makes you hesitant and want to stand on the outside looking in because that altar gets damaged and that's not what God wants for our lives. That's not what he wants for you. He's calling us this morning to repair the altar of our hearts, church. See, if you can think back on one time in your past where you were more excited about your relationship with God and is calling on your life than you are right now, then something is, is, is damaged in there and we need to get it back to where it was. Heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. I want you to think back. Think back just for a little bit the time you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You remember how exciting it was? You remember how, how new the adventure was? You remember how amazing it was to come into church and have him speak to you and challenge you and how you used to come up to the altars and respond and how you used to let him just do what he wanted to do in your life and how you were just there saying, God, you've done so much for me. If there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. Because it was new and it was fresh. And his love was just overwhelming. And the work that he had done in your life was so real and so alive. And you were so passionate. What happened? 
What happened? To get that fire to dwindle down. What happened to get you to accept what you call normal in your walk with God right now? I'm here to tell you this morning that God wants to restore one piece at a time that altar of your heart to turn your heart back to Him again. 100%, not 80%, not 95%, 100% back to Him. Heads bowed, eyes closed, and no one looking around. I want to pray for you this morning and I, I want to know who I'm praying for. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor Josh, this word is for me. It's for me. I need to own where I'm at. It's time to stop wavering between the culture of this world and who God has called me to be because I, I'm realizing that the, the things that I've got in my life are just going to ultimately take me down a road of destruction. It's time for me to hit the brakes and let God restore that part of me. Listen, I'm telling you, God hasn't given up on you. God's still got a calling on your life. God's still got a calling on your life. And if you'll let him today, God will restore. God will heal. God will reach into that place that you tried so desperately to hide from everybody else. He still sees it. And he wants to restore that altar today because the fire of God that passion of God I'm telling you guys it is not going to fall in your life and be what it could be unless we get that altar repaired it's in your heart so if that's you you know it's you when I count to three I want you to lift your eyes up and I want you to look at me I want to pray for you this morning on the count of three if that's you Pastor Josh it's me I know I know I need to let God do some work on me today this is your moment here we go one two three lift them up and look at me i see yours and yours i see yours 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 i see yours i see yours i see your eyes in the back i see you over the